if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn in them with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 7 through 16 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, as Pastor Steve mentioned earlier, we have uh, a number there in the back shelf uh, ready for you to, to take home, but you'll also find uh, one there in the seat in front of you. If you're going to be in that uh, version uh, with the red cover, we're going to be on page 977. Help you find it a little easier, 977. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. And it's been a, a really interesting and, and fascinating and, and encouraging uh, book to walk through uh, Ephesians following this, this merger of two churches. As Grantwood Community Church and Old Oak Bible Church put aside uh, differences and, and preferences and, and came together in, in a, a really, I, I think, incredible way, uh, this passage has seemed um, just really fitting for us as, as we walk through uh, not only what a church is, but what does unity look like in it. And I, I know that it's uh, been challenging at times, and uh, I, I hope that, that this word, that, that God's Spirit has, has encouraged you and uh, drawn us here. And so uh, I think we, we've said it before, but we'll just continue to say it, how, how grateful we are for each of you. Uh, that are uh, navigating this this change with us. I hope that you see the Lord at work uh, as we do, um, and I hope that it is uh, an encouragement to your walk. And so, as we continue to to figure this out, uh, last week Pastor Steve was taking us through the first six verses of this uh, chapter here in Ephesians four, uh, and he was just talking about this incredible unity. Uh, that is here in Christ. If you remember last week, uh, he, he talked about uh, a couple different numbers, the, the one, the seven, the three, uh, the ways that we see uh, Christ talking us uh, to him in, in one faith, and then the seven different unifiers of uh, the body, the spirit, the Lord, baptism, faith, etc., and then uh, the three, the, the trinity that, that's unified here. Just talking about the, the greatness of unity in the church. And it really is a, a great and incredible thing. But I, I know is so often if we, we take a passage on its own without moving to its consequence, we can miss some of the, the fullness that's there. And so so grateful for, for Steve to, to kind of set up uh, this, this volley here that we can just now drive in, that we see uh, as Paul is taking us through Ephesians 4, uh, that he is laying out this, this great unity to be had. But he doesn't just leave it there. Rather, he's going to show how God brings it about in us. Because Christ has given us grace through the church, that we are able to work in growth and unity. And so let's start just by reading this passage. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. The word of God says this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, he led, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ 
until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up itself In this passage, we see Christ taking on uh, three uh, significant roles in our life. And so if you see the outline there uh, in your bulletin and, and or following it along uh, here on the page that, uh, or on the screen rather, that we see first of all uh, that Christ is here the giver of grace. That the way and work of, of unity in the church is, is not uh, a hidden recipe. That you don't have to, to buy a book uh, in order to see it. Uh, rather, we see that it is simply and fully reliant on Jesus Christ. That Jesus is one who brings this about in us. He patterns it before us to imitate and calls us to be united. That this is Christ in the work of, of God in the church. So we see that he is the giver of grace. And so as he is giving grace to us, we see here in in verse 7, he says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he quotes uh, Psalm 68, and he says, Therefore it says that he ascended on high, and when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and giving gifts to men. So it's really interesting that this giver of grace, Paul doesn't just come out and say, hey, Jesus gives us grace, let's kind of move on. But instead, looking back to the Old Testament, we see the promise of what God was going to do through Christ. And as he's described as one who leads the captives. So after just explaining this great unity that's we had, Paul is going to show how God brings it about in us. And he references the work of Christ. He references this battle that was won, there on the cross, but then going beyond it in the same way. Uh, Tabidi Anyuweble uh, is reflecting on uh, how medieval movies, there's some of his favorite movies, but he, he describes how uh, every time the, the battle is won, the king is victorious, that's when the, the credits roll. But what we see in scripture is, is more than that. What you see is that once the battle is won, then the rule is established. Then we get to see the, the fullness of what follows. So he, he describes this and he says that what is the character of grace's reign in the Christian life? Grace reigns through righteousness. When grace vanquishes sin, it establishes the reign of righteousness throughout the realm until eternal life is consummated. That Christ is leading the captives. He's won the battle. And now his reign is going out from this place. It's not simply that grace is here to save us. Absolutely, this is true. We are saved by grace through faith. Grace is something that is salvific in nature. But beyond that, this is also the grace that is needed to follow Christ. Not just to be one to him, but to follow him in his reign and rule in the world. This grace that is needed to follow Christ apparently comes with different gifts and capacities. 
He says that it was given to us in different measures, according to the measure of Christ's gift, given to each one of us. That the grace given to you in, in the sense of beyond salvation of what does it look like to live this out is going to look different than the grace given to me. Not that one of us would have more or less grace than one another, but rather we apply it in different ways because we are called to work and live and move in different spheres of life. As we think about what is Christ given to me? What has Christ uh, gifted me with? Where has he placed me to be about his kingdom? We begin to think about our, the way that we work, the way that we speak to our neighbors differently. We begin to think of those, those interactions, those exchanges differently. Maybe you begin to think differently about, maybe just ethereal, we'll put this out there. Maybe you're going to get $1,400 soon. Maybe you think differently about what that looks like. Absolutely to, to meet needs and, and to, to use what it's intended for. But what if you were to say, how can I use this and any other thing that God has given me? Any other resources or gifts or capacities or skill set that God has placed in my life? How can I use this for the kingdom? Why? Because this is the grace that Christ has bestowed upon you for his that he is the one who is leading the captives. That you and I were, were captive to sin. We were stuck in our death. And he has brought us out. And how does he bring us out? But to lead a host of us, giving gifts to men. He goes on further. He says uh, that this is the giver of grace who has led the captives, but he has done so ascending on high. And he goes in verse 9. He says, because he has ascended, what does that mean? But that he first descended, that Christ has descended to us. That as he descends to us, this is, of course, reference to both Christ's incarnation as well as his death. That he comes down not only to earth, but humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and that he descends into the grave. That Christ's obedience here, his descent to earth and the grave, shows us the great familiarity that he has with us. That this isn't Christ speaking down from, from his ivory tower, his cloudy tower, or whatever it might be, as one that is unfamiliar with suffering. Christ isn't coming to us and meeting us off as one who is unaware of the struggle of life, of pain, of loss, of grief, of hardship, of hunger. Christ came in the fullness of humanity, and yet without sin. Christ has been tired. He's lost loved ones. He had felt pain, exhaustion turmoil, joy, friendship. The uniqueness of, of the Christian life is that our God lived as one of us and restored us through that. We read earlier just a portion of Psalm 68 from which uh, this passage is quoting that he's leading a host of captives. Paul seems to be uh, quoting this in part, not necessarily just taking it from the Septuagint or, or from the Hebrew, but rather giving reference to this passage, using the familiar language, but then expounding on it in, in greater depth. Uh, if you were to go back and read uh, Psalm 68, you would recognize he ascended on high, led a host of captives, uh, but the gifts on, on men, Paul seems to be just 
taking it and, and tweaking it a little bit, using that familiar language that they would recognize and then expounding on it in, in a greater way so that they see not just that uh, this is generally Christ, but the way that he works in their life. That Christ here is, is meeting us here as, as taking these captives and not just leading them in victory, but also bestowing these gifts from here. He's not just the God who who came down. He's not just the God who descended. He's not just the God who even went to death. But he's also the God who ascends before us. That he is risen. That Christ is above all, both in his resurrection from the grave, but then also his ascension from the earth once again to reign on high. That where is Christ today? Not, not in a, a theoretical sense of, well, I think he's in my heart. Or, no, absolutely, he, he dwells here. But he's also in a very real sense on his throne. That Christ is ruling now. That he has ascended before us. He is above all. He has given us access to him in the church. He has given us access to display his power, to display his glory, to give us wisdom that the ascension marks his ability to give gifts and mark authority. Right? And this is a concept that we're well acquainted with. You've heard the phrase, to the victor belong the spoils. We may or may not know the origin of that statement. The first time that we can find record of it, at least, is in 1831. Then New York Senator William L. Marcy uh, was defending Andrew Jackson. He had been elected two years prior, uh, and if you know much about Andrew Jackson, uh, he was not the epitome of virtue. Uh, in fact, uh, he was wielding his, his presidency uh, very corruptly, uh, giving uh, every position, <laughs> knocking down anyone that had been raised up before, and uh, this is spoils policy and politics at large, but this corruptive power had yield corruption and, and people were accusing him of, uh, of just flipping the government on its head. And Marcy, the senator in kind of the folds of Jackson, says, well, to the victor belong the spoils. He was elected. He should get what, what's coming here and just kind of got to deal with it. And so now every four years, we, we have this kind of mindset of, or, or maybe eight years, whatever it is, that is upturn. And okay, now we have to have an entire flip of the system, flip and flip and flip and flip, and always realizing it's never enough because the wrong person's on the throne. The difference here is that to the victor belong the spoils. On earth, as long as it is on earth, it will always be some level of corruption, some level of pain, some level of abusive power. And yet, when Christ ascends, when he leads this host of captives, he gives gifts to men. While corruptive power yields corruption, virtuous power yields virtue. Christ is is coming. He has ascended before us as one without sin. He's dealing with the issue that is in the root of our hearts. He's making something new. And he does so through grace. That as Christ is giving us grace, as Christ is equipping us and calling us and making us like him, he is inviting us to be a part of his 
Christ is the giver of grace. Not only is he the giver of grace, but he's also the equipper of the church. He's the one who equips the church for this work. Verse 11, he says, not only does he give grace, but he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. That he has given the church these roles and these offices. And just to work through these, and I know there's so much more that can be said, uh, just another invitation. Uh, come back on Wednesday night, and we'll, we'll dig into this a little more. Uh, but here are the apostles. These are those that are uh, the trusted witnesses, literally that they had seen the resurrected Christ. And so initially his 12, but then also we see Paul and Barnabas and others brought into this fold of those trusted witnesses on which Christ has built his church. They established uh, this practice. Also, the prophets, that we have a, an Old Testament tradition, New Testament tradition uh, of seeing what the role of the prophet is, uh, and it's really twofold. In, in one sense, we, we kind of think of it in, in the, the foretelling, right, the prediction, the uh, I'm going to predict something about you, but there's also uh, this other aspect, and that's the foretelling, that's proclaiming uh, what is already there. Sometimes it's a, a knowledge of, of things that they should not be able to know, not in the future sense, but rather in the, the past sense. So we think of, of Nathan coming and confronting David. He, he knew all about his sin, everything that David thought he had hidden and covered up and, and put aside. God saw right to his heart, used Nathan to, to confront and do that. The fourth telling is, is not just uh, this aspect of, of prediction, but it's also of, of speaking truth to power at times, of, of recognizing this is what Christ has called justice and equity and fairness and mercy and love, that he calls us to bear the character of God. Beyond that, we see there's the position here of, of the evangelists. Uh, not just that all Christians are called to, to evangelism, we're all called to proclaim the kingdom, to share our faith, but this seems to be those that are especially gifted for this end, of those that are uh, gifted in, in missions and in going out and, and doing this in an incredible way. And then this last category, uh, preachers and teachers are, are tied together uh, of shepherds, of those that teach uh, and this is the, the task that, that Christ has called to feed and protect uh, of those that are teaching regularly. Uh, but what we see here is this progression that Christ is saying uh, through Paul here. He said, this is what I've given the church. And it's not to say, well, okay, well, what is, what is my spiritual gift? What office am I? When am I moving in here? No, it's to see, no, this is the full scope from the apostles, the foundation of the church, down to the, the incredible lay level of every church's pastor and teacher and the evangelists and prophets and everything that, that God has set up. What is it for? Well, let's look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. He doesn't say, I've, I've set apart these offices, I've set apart these staff members, Here, here's the group, here's the professional Christians, they're going to do the kingdom work. No, he says, no, I've, I've given you them so that we can all do the work of the ministry. In one sense, there are no professional Christians. In the other sense, we are all professional Christians. If we are in Christ, we are expected to do the work of the ministry. And we say, what does that look like? It looks like being equipped and doing the being the, be equipped, that we are here, the ones that have been set apart, the, the saints here, that means the holy ones, the ones that have been made holy by Christ, 
He has equipped us for this work, for equipping the saints for the work of ministry, this picture of, of mending what was, what was incomplete, this idea that, uh, in really this, this idea of, of equipping, it's, it's a word that we, we only see a handful of times in Scripture, but the way that we see it is, is so illustrative of, of what it looks like. And another place that we see this is in Matthew 4.21. It says, And Jesus comes upon James and John, and they're out there on the boat with their father, and what are they doing? If we're just taking word to word, they're equipping their nets. They're, they're mending them. They're, they're making them complete. Where there were holes, where fish would escape, there's now repair. And so what has Christ called us to do? He, he says, we are called through these, these churches, through these members, through these elders, through these evangelists, through the apostles, the prophets, everyone's coming together. And what are we doing? We're mending holes. We're, we're being equipped for the work of ministry to say, what is lacking here? Okay, we know that it's lacking. We don't just ignore it. No, let's rather fill that hole. Another place we see this is in 11, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11.3. And it says, God in his creative work, he's describing God speaking over creation, that he is equipping creation into order. He, he's molding it, he's shaping it, he's refining it. That the very hand of God forming mountains and valleys and oceans is descriptive of this task of, of say, taking something as it describes it in Genesis as formless and, and void, a little chaotic even. And he shapes it into the beauty of creation that we know. That this is what Christ has called us to do and be in the church, to be equipped and, and molded and shaped and fine-tuned some of us are a little rough around the edges, and that's okay. Why? Not because we want to fix you, but because Christ wants to mend you. That Christ wants to make you like him. Christ wants to lead you by his spirit for the equipping of the church and for the building, later in verse 12, for the building up of the body of Christ. We each have a vital role in this body. Elsewhere we see Paul and talking about the, the giftings. Here he says, should a hand say to a foot, because you are not a hand, you have no place in this body. The eye to the ear, the nose, whatever it is, that we, we view ourselves as, as different. And some of us can, can be harder on ourselves and say, I don't, I don't have a place. I don't belong here. I don't feel welcome in this body. And shame on us for, for ever speaking in such a way that, that someone would feel that way. But let us also, in a, in a higher sense, in a greater sense, recognize the value and dignity of each member. To recognize that gifting, to recognize that tooling, and to say, you are part of the plan of God to identify the ways that each of us is, is called to build up the body. It is to say, where have I been lacking? Where can I step into a need? We can easily identify problems in, in the church. It's so easy for us to say, 
I hate that. I don't like that. This could be better. That could be better. How often do we say, I wonder what I could do here. I wonder how I could serve this person. I wonder how I could step in there. That we would be for the mission of Christ. To equip the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ. There's also here in this passage, not just that Christ has called us for, but also what he has called us to. What the church is to. These are our ends. This is our destination, what we are trying to arrive at. The for is the purpose, what we are going about, what we are acting for. Two is where we are going to arrive. Our ends here are to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or to maturity. That these ends here, the unity of faith, the knowledge of Christ, the maturity. We recognize that Christ is our uniting affinity and truth. That only Christ here, the, the faith here is, is our, our knowledge of Christ. That our, our knowledge of him is this uh, greater exploration and depth and maturity and knowledge that, that comes in walking with him. That as we move towards this as we move to maturity, that we are moving towards the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This idea that there is a completion of character, not of comparison. When we say here and we we say, what does it mean to, to be measured to the stature of the fullness of Christ? In one sense, we could stop at comparison and say, there is Jesus, here is me. He's got this, 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 and this, and I don't have any of that. In fact, I've got some other additions, and they're not as pretty. Rather, he says, he is meeting us there and making us like him. That this is the maturity. This is the growth. This is the knowledge that would be more like Christ day after day after day. And so what does this maturity look like? Verse 14, that we would no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Some of us are too comfortable being children in the faith. Do you remember the the jingle for what doesn't even exist anymore, but Toys R Us? I don't want to grow up because I'm a Toys R Us kid. And the idea there is it's great to be a kid. I've got all of these toys. People are nice to me. I don't have to pay bills. I don't have to do taxes. I don't have to whatever else. And maybe that's not the full recognition, but a little hindsight there. How many of us look at the faith and say, I don't want to grow up? That asks too much of me. That looks hard. I don't feel like it. And the consequence is that we are tossed to and fro. That waves are coming in by the cunning and human doctrine and craftiness, deceitful schemes that the enemy is seeking to toss us about. And I bet each one of us can identify what those are in our very hearts. What are the things that can come out of left field and just knock you for a loop? That make you feel further and further and further from Christ feel further in your faith. 
What are the waves that toss you? Here are a few. Maybe those waves are conspiracy. One idea after another of hopelessness. Maybe that wave is passivity. Maybe it's division. Maybe it's gossip. What are the waves that toss you? And how can you cling to Christ? It's not to recognize those and, and pretend that they don't exist. It's not that we are grow up and mature and, the, and all of a sudden the, the sea is stopped, that the waves stop crashing. But when we cling to the solid rock that is Christ, we are no longer tossed with them. That Christ has equipped his church. And he's equipped us for building it, for doing the work of ministry, to grow into maturity and knowledge of unity, of the faith knowledge of the Son of God. This is the fullness of Christ. So how do we do this? How do we go about the work of unity in the church? Paul gives us two ways. And they have to do innately with Christ as the head of the body. Verse 15, rather Rather than being tossed, rather than being thrown, rather than being carried away, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself the head of the body means that, that Christ is above all. That Christ is the one who, who dictates and, and guides and directs the work of the body. That we're not doing anything because this is the way that, that culture is going to work in this way and this is the way that, that our nation is going to work in this way and this is what lines up with tax code and this is what lines up with our community. But rather that we say, what would Christ have us do? And as we go about that, how can we grow up into that head? It says that we are, are, are body members. We're, we're a part of this. And when each part of the body is working properly, we grow in the body so that it builds itself up in love. And we, we see two ways of doing this. The first is that we speak the truth in love. So rather than, than being tossed by all of these different waves, we speak the truth in love. Speaking the loving truth means that we cannot afford to use the tactics of the enemy. The world follows that pattern. We follow Christ. And so what truth are we speaking? Well, in one sense, as Augustine has said, all truth is God's truth. If something is truly truth, not just that we, we call it truth. If it is actually, genuinely the article of truth, that truth has its source, has its origination in God himself. 
that truth resides in the character and being of God, that all truth is God's truth. But even more than that, there is the truth of us in Christ. That there are ways that, as we recognize that all truth is God's truth, that there is a a way that we are called to to speak truth and love, that this is going to look different in each one of our lives. The truth is the same. It's going to be the same in this country, in this church, in this state, as it will in any other country, in any other church, in any other state. Why? Because truth resides in God. That he is not bound in the same way that we are bound. And yet we can transpose this truth. Todd Wilson in his book, The Enneagram Goes to Church, talks about uh, the way that we are often having to, to transpose the truth that's around us. Transposition is this idea, and uh, we have a, a very uh, clear and, and wonderful example of this, uh, even on our music team. Uh, so grateful for, for Carla and the work that she does there on the viola. Uh, one of the, the beauties about the work that she does is that if you take just normal sheet music, the, or the, um, you know, the, the notes, the chords, everything else that is, uh, a normal musician would, would use uh, to, to follow along the song, the viola is written in a different key. It's in a different uh, chord, and I'm probably speaking in ways that I, I at least don't understand, but she does, and that's why, that's why she does that. Uh, but this is how it works, is that, yes, there's this tune, yes, there's this, this word, but if we just take it in its, in its most rigid sense, yes, it's there. How are we transposing it in life? Where are we just actually taking this and, and applying it? If, if we were to say, what does this passage look like in my life? I'm supposed to speak the truth in love. Okay. What does that look like? What what are you saying? How are you saying it? What are the ways that we're applying this passage, any passage? How are we applying scripture in our lives? I I think at times we, we see the truth, but we never transpose it in our life. We never take it and we never apply it. We never live it out. It's, it's something to say, oh, that's, that's nice. That's nice to think about. We, we build up our theology. We, we build up our, our anthropology, right? We know who God is. We know who we are. And we never move to ethics. We never say, what is God asking of me? What is he, what is he calling me to do? What is he calling me not to do? And so as we look at the unity of this passage, as we look at the unity of this book, as we look at the call to unity here, how are you speaking the truth and love to those in the church? This is an indictment of myself as well. When is the last time, and I hope it wasn't long ago, I hope that we can think of this, this quickly and it's resolved. When is the last time you told another member of your church that you love them? When is the last time that you were encouraged? When was the last time that you encouraged someone else? How are we living out this passage? And if we're struggling to to think, when was the last time I encouraged someone? When was the last time I, I told them I love them? Maybe we need to up our game. Maybe we need to imitate Christ in greater ways. Maybe we need to speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love at times is uncomfortable because it means that we speak to the truth of sin. Speaking the, the truth of love 
uh, in love can, can be uncomfortable in ourselves because it means speaking truth to myself. Not just elevating myself or, or looking at others and saying, I can fix all of these problems, but never looking at my own heart. But that we would speak the truth in love and we would imitate Christ. And that in so doing, finally, we would grow up in Christ. That here is, is stability and health in Christ. Only works when attuned to the head. This only works when we're attuned to the head. And when we work properly, when we work in the way that God has designed us to work, God has, has made you to be you. God hasn't made you to be David Platt. He hasn't made you to be Augustine. He hasn't made you to be Mother Teresa. He hasn't made you to be, insert whoever you admire, look up to, or imitate. Christ has made you to be you. We work to be like Christ, not these personalities that we admire, not these these other people in the faith those that can be guiding lights and good, but to know ourselves well in order to step out and be ourselves well. Know what you're gifted at and use that for the kingdom of God. John Stott says, how can one give what one does not know one has? How can I give something that I don't even know that I have? someone asks me for something and then I, I can go back and I can dig it out and, and find it. It's like, oh, I didn't even know I had that thing unless you were to ask. How much better is it to say, I, I know what I have. I, I know my, my giftings. I know my skill set. I, I know my personality. But even more than that, I know that I have Christ. I know what he has put inside of me. And because I know that, I can give it away. Because I know that Christ has united us in the faith. I can seek that unity. When I know that I'm wrong, I can apologize. When I know that I've, I've caused wrong, I can seek repair. When I know that someone is stumbling or grieving, I can come along beside them. When I know the truth, I can speak it in love. Because Christ has given us grace through the church. We are able to work in growth and in unity. Father, we thank you for who you are. God, for what you have done in us. Lord, that you have united us. Lord, in nothing else but the truth of Christ. Lord, let us grapple with that truth. Let us grapple with the reign of Christ in our lives. Lord, let us speak the truth to one another in love. Father, forgive us where our hearts have been distant. God, equip us to love one another well. Lord, to not, not pass over sin. Lord, not to withhold forgiveness. but Lord, to respond to one another as you respond to us. Lord, to respond to you, Lord, as you have called us. Lord, we love you. God, we rely on you. We pray these things in the saving name of Jesus Christ.
and the power of your Holy Spirit.